This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolonor Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. to PupilPod Live, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Netta Nikpour. Dr. Nikpour is a cataract, cornea, and refractive surgeon based out of Honolulu, Hawaii. Dr. Nikpour, thank you again for joining me tonight. Thank you, Scylla. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's get straight into the case for the sake of time. We have a 26-year-old woman with a history of myopic astigmatism and long-term contact lens wear who presents to your office for laser vision correction. Dr. Nikpour, what are the most important parts of a patient's social and medical history when you're considering laser vision correction? Yeah, great question. Um, So I always like to start by getting to know my patients. So I feel like there's two parts to any refractive consult. The first part is you want to get a sense of what do they spend their time doing? Are they working? What are their hobbies? How do they use their eyes? What's important to them in terms of their vision? Um, and then medically, basically, I like to run through and see what are some contraindications to LASIK and evaluate them for some of the things you know in their um, in their history that could make them a questionable or poor candidate for refractive surgeries such as autoimmune disease. You know, some of these things are relative contraindications, but assessing for any eye conditions or medical conditions, medications, things like that, um, Accutane use, HIV, HSV, um, diabetes. Those are some of the things that I like to ask patients. And we have a whole screening questionnaire that we use to make sure we don't miss anything. And what about patients who are pregnant or breastfeeding? Yeah, so good question. Pregnancy is definitely a contraindication in my opinion to LASIK. Breastfeeding is listed as a contraindication, but there are a lot of refractive surgeons who feel that you can safely perform LASIK on patients who are breastfeeding. Um, and I am one of those. I think, you know, there's sometimes what's written in the textbooks, and then there's sometimes what's real, you know, what's the real world application of some of these relative contraindications. And um, for anyone who has kids, most women who are wearing glasses or contacts and waking up in the middle of the night and trying to breastfeed patients realize that that's something that's really difficult. Um, And so refractive surgeons who are trying to help their patients who came before me have kind of tested this and have discovered that it's actually safe to do, to do LASIK in patients who are breastfeeding with a few caveats. You want to make sure that the refractive error is stable. Um, And so often I'll ask patients if they've had a shift in their refraction or if they still see well in the same glasses that they had before pregnancy, then you can safely presume that the refraction is stable. The other is that um, breastfeeding, especially in combination with LASIK, can make your eyes dry. And so I caution patients that they may have a little bit more dry eye after LASIK while they're breastfeeding than 
um, a person who's not breastfeeding. And then also if they are going to take a Valium, then generally it's recommended that they, temp- they pump and dump before, um, sorry, pump and dump after their procedure. So there's not any risk of transmission to their newborn. And what about patients with corneal conditions? What are some of the conditions that you think about that are absolute versus kind of relative contraindications for yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So the number one biggest thing that we screen for obviously is we do photographies on all patients and um, want to make sure we evaluate the anterior and posterior cornea to evaluate for any sign of keratoconus, even for first keratoconus is a contraindication to performing LASIK. That being said, um, there's been a pretty significant study done by Damien Gatinell that found that you can safely perform PRK on patients who have actual keratoconus, who have frank keratoconus, but most of us in the U.S. don't really do that, um, don't perform any laser vision correction on patients who have keratoconus unless it's, you know, maybe in combination with um, cross-linking or sequentially after cross-linking. So keratoconus is the big one. Um, and any other ectatic corneal disease like hallucinant marginal degeneration, those are contraindications to LASIK. Um, Fuchs is considered a contraindication relatively um, also you know, EBMD plus or minus, I know some people, myself included, have performed LASIK on patients who have EBMD and there's oftentimes subclinical EBMD that you discover after the fact. So they might just have some more healing issues. PRK is generally considered safer um, for those patients. And it's not really a corneal condition, but any history of HSV or history of HSV keratitis. So HSV keratitis Active HSV keratitis or recent HSV keratitis, absolutely a contraindication. Um, but there's again been some really good studies retrospectively looking at patients who have a history of HSV who were prophylaxed with antivirals perioperatively, and it was found that they did not have a higher risk um, of breakthrough HSV keratitis. So that's one of those that's sort of a relative and should be taken, you know, into consideration case by case. And then what about patients with glaucoma? Are there any things that you consider in those patients, special things that residents should know about? Yeah, absolutely. So glaucoma is another one of those that's considered a contraindication, um, but not all glaucoma is created equal. And so if you have somebody who has severe end-stage glaucoma, of course, you're not going to be doing a refractive procedure on that person. But there's people who fall into this gray area of, you know, what about like ocular hypertension or mild glaucoma that's been stable on medications. Um, you know, historically we pretty much only had IOP and visual field maybe to be looking at these patients to determine if they're progressing. And we know that doing laser vision correction can affect the, and does affect the thickness of the cornea and the hysteresis, which can affect the, you know, accuracy, reliability of your IOP measurements. But what I tell glaucoma patients who have mild, well-controlled disease is that there are many other ways to follow glaucoma. We have OCT imaging, we have visual field. It's not just IOP. So yes, there is an effect on their IOP, but that in and of itself is not enough to convince me that we should not perform glaucoma on these patients, should not perform LASIK on these patients. Um, There is some concern in my mind that, you know, suction from the femtosecond laser can temporarily increase IOP, even though it's just for a few seconds. I think most people who have enough optic nerve reserve probably can withstand the 10 seconds on the FS200 to make their flap. 
probably not going to have an impact on their glaucoma. But again, for a more moderate person, maybe something like PRK would be safer. Um, and then, you know, historically, people were concerned about using steroids postoperatively, but we now have steroids like lipoprednol that do not really raise IOP. And so that's not as much of a concern. So I think glaucoma is a good example of one of the contraindications that started maybe as an absolute contraindication, but as technologies progressed, it's more of a relative contraindication, something to actually discuss with your patients, make them aware of the risk and see if it's something that's worth it to them. If they're going to have good compliance and, and good close follow-up, then you can feel more comfortable doing LASIK or PRK in a glaucoma patient. And then we can't forget about our retina colleagues. Is there an increased risk of retinal detachments or tears with patients that are undergoing refractive surgery? What do you talk to about your high myopes and things like that? Oh, well, we can forget about our retina colleagues because they just look right through the cornea and don't think about it at all. (laughs) So true. (laughs) um, No, I think, uh, you know, it's funny. One of my really good friends who is program director at the University of Puerto Rico, who's a retina specialist who I know very well, he surmised that LASIK causes retinal tears and retinal detachments, because he says, I'm operating on so many patients who've had previous LASIK who have retinal tears and retinal detachments. And I'm like, well, these are all patients who are high myopes, or at least typically are myopes. And so you're operating on patients who are at a higher risk of developing a retinal tear detachment. Anyway, you can't blame it on their LASIK just because it's, you know, coincidental or correlated doesn't mean it's like correlation is not causation, right? So, um, it hasn't panned out in studies. So no, it does not cause retinal tears or retinal detachments. Great. We need to send a memo out to all of our retina colleagues. Right. Um, how long do you usually wait for patients to have a stable refraction before you feel like they're ready for refractive surgery? Yeah. Um, good question. And I would say the textbook answer is, you know, a half diopter or so over the course of a year, you don't want more than a half diopter change over a year and you want them to be stable. Now, I will say if you have somebody who's 35, 40 years old and they're, if they suffer from some dry eye and they have tear film instability, then their refraction could go up plus or minus a half over the course of a couple of years. And that doesn't necessarily mean that their refraction is changing. If you have somebody who's 19 years old and has, you know, a quarter to half of increasing myopia and astigmatism every year, even though that's under your half diopter, maybe you want to pay a little bit closer attention to that person. And maybe you want to make them wait a little bit longer. So I think some of the things that are written in textbooks as a, you know, cutoff value aren't necessarily to be taken as an absolute. Um, And there are some patients who have a shift in their refraction that looks concerning and have a suspicious topography that looks concerning for possible early form first keratoconus or early keratoconus that may um, may be, you know, contraindicated for them to have laser vision correction. I think that's different than somebody who has a little bit of fluctuation up and down and has absolutely pristine normal topographies, then I would feel much more comfortable operating on that person and giving them the caveat that, you know, if your refraction changes a little bit over the next few years, we'll just do a free enhancement for you. And, and a lot of times those patients are just so eager to be out of their glasses or contacts that they would rather not keep waiting for stability. Okay. So switching gears here a little bit, let's say this patient was 40 and you were discussing monovision versus mini monovision. Can you walk us through your thought process and how you have those discussions with your patients? Yeah, absolutely. So I, even with the pre-presbyopic patient starting as early as like 38, I'll talk to patients about it. 
Um, because, you know, if I were having LASIK at 38, I would want to know that I'm going to become presbyopic in a short number of years. And I would want the ability to be undercorrected a little bit in one eye if, um, if I was having LASIK. And so I'll even start talking to people who have not yet become presbyopic and explain to them that, you know, while LASIK is going to correct your distance vision, your near vision will gradually deteriorate. That is something that normally happens to everybody as they go over 40, 45 and kind of explain presbyopia because not everybody really knows that. And you'd be surprised how many people don't actually know that that's something that will change for them. Um, and then once they understand presbyopia, then I say, okay, knowing that that's something that will happen to you inevitably in the future because it happens to everyone, then one of the ways that we have to work around that is by leaving one eye a little bit myopic, leaving one eye a little bit undercorrected. And generally at that point, we'll demonstrate it with, you know, loose lenses or with a trial frame. Um, and some patients don't really notice at all. And then you cover one eye, cover the other eye, and they're like, oh yeah, now I notice the distance blur in that eye. Um, if patients absolutely don't notice with both eyes open, then I tell them, oh yeah, you're somebody who would do great with this. That's something that, you know, as long as you have both eyes open, the two eyes will blend together seamlessly, and this will help push out the need for reading glasses for you for at least a few years. Um, if they're already presbyopic, then I highly encourage them to have a little bit of monovision and to undercorrect one eye, um, and would demonstrate to them what it would be like to be distance corrected. And it's not enough just to ask patients, um, how do you see with your glasses on when you're trying to read, or how do you see with your contacts when you're trying to read? Because some optometrists are automatically undercorrecting them because they know that they're a little bit presbyopic. So their glasses prescription may not actually be the refraction that you're gonna shoot. And a lot of times patients will then struggle with near after LASIK with distance correction OU, even if they were fine in the glass of your contacts before. So that's an important distinction that has to be made, um, has to be made with them. And the other thing I'll tell patients is, you know, almost everybody will eventually adapt within six months or a year or so. And if they don't like it, it is much easier to treat the residual myopia than it is to now try to reverse them and put a hyperopic correction on top of their myopic correction. And I tell patients that I'm like, you know, if you're not sure, give it a chance. We'll do this. We'll undo it for free. It takes, you know, five minutes for you to come in and have us do an enhancement. If you really aren't happy with it after giving it six months or so to try. That's such a good point. I never thought of that, but that's a great way to counsel them. So we do spend a lot of time on the preoperative refraction. Can you explain why we always, always get a manifest anesthetic refraction, especially in our refractive patients? Absolutely. Yeah. Great question. So, um, the refraction is the most important thing. And if you're not doing the refraction yourself, like me and my practice, my optometrist is arguably more important in the LASIK process than me doing the surgery. Um, because that's the critical part. That's the numbers you're going to program in the laser and that's going to determine their vision. Um, so getting a good refraction is key and doing all of the things that lead to getting a good refraction, like optimizing your ocular surface, you know, stopping contacts, depending on which contact lens, which contact lenses, however many days, you know, we do three days for soft lenses, a week for toric lenses. You do all of these things to optimize their surface. You bring them in, you do a dry refraction or just a manifest refraction and then a wet or a cyclo refraction. And the reason for the cyclorefraction is that young patients, especially, and especially hyperopes, will accommodate and do have some level of accommodative spasm. And if there's a large difference between the manifest and the cyclo, then that should cause the surgeon to take pause a little bit and look 
cluster to see if there's some amount of latent hyperopia that, you know, you may need to wean them in glasses. And that's a whole separate conversation of how to address it if you find a difference. But um, especially in hyperopes, you may find a difference that could lead to refractive surprise. Um, and even in young myopes, sometimes the cycle can be pretty different from the, from the dry manifest refraction. Okay, so last question. Now, corneal topography, obviously a beast of an, in and of itself and is a topic for another episode, but can you explain what we mean when we say residual stromal bed and why it's so important in determining who is a good candidate for refractive surgery? Sure, absolutely. Um, the residual stromal bed or the residual stromal thickness is the amount of the cornea, the number of microns of cornea that's left untouched after any laser correction. And so with LASIK, you have say a 500 micron cornea and you're cutting a hundred, hundred micron flap just to make it easy. Um, then you now have 400 microns of cornea that you're left working with. And if you're doing an ablation, that's say ablating 50 microns. Now you have 150 microns of cornea that's been touched and 350 microns of cornea that's left over that leftover untouched cornea is your residual stromal bed or residual stromal thickness. Um, with PRK, you basically are taking 50 off for the epithelium and then whatever you're removing from the stroma. And so it's a slightly different number. Um, PTA is something that was recent, relatively recently described that's percent tissue altered. And basically people generally believe that if you stay over um, a residual stromal bed of 300 and under a PTA of 40%, that your risk of causing corneal ectasia is significantly less than if you violate those numbers. Um, that's based essentially off Randleman's criteria and Randleman's, you know, risk staging, um, which is kind of a hallmark paper. And one of the interesting things about that is, you know, I've talked to Randleman about this, and he says one of the one of the things that people often misinterpret is that if they have a patient with a suspicious topography and they stay over 300 or under 40%, that they're safe. And the number one thing that people often forget is that you have to have a normal topography. So the topography is still king over everything else. And those numbers are just kind of safety parameters in addition to normal topography. Well, guys, there you have it. The basics of refractive surgery from our incredible refractive surgeon, Dr. Nick Poor. I'm just going to summarize everything that you taught us from, from this episode, and it's been a lot. So <laughs> a thorough history is important during the preoperative evaluation. You should ask patients about their jobs, their hobbies, and of course, their past medical history. Contraindications to refractive surgery include corneal ectasias, keratoconus, and pregnancy. You should take special precautions in patients that are breastfeeding, but it's not necessarily a contraindication. And you should also take special precautions in patients with underlying ocular conditions and make sure they understand the risks and the benefits of refractive surgery for them. All patients should have a manifest and a cycloplegic refraction to ensure that in the cases of myopes, they're not over minus, and in the cases of hyperopes, that they don't have a latent hyperopia that they're accommodating through. Central corneal thickness and residual stromal bed are important in determining candidates for refractive surgery. Most surgeons aim for an RSB of greater than 300 microns or a percentage of tissue altered of greater than 40%. And as always, laser vision correction can significantly improve our patient's quality of life, but requires very careful preoperative planning in order to determine if it's appropriate for the patient, and if so, what the best options are for them. Dr. Nickpour, before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in history, who would it be and why? 
Oh, um, hmm. I would say, I think I would have dinner with the Dalai Lama um, because I think it would be really fascinating to be in his company and see how he, I don't know, how he acts and how, what it's like to be around somebody who's that enlightened and that kind of a person and to just experience, experience that and be in close proximity to it, I think would be really fascinating. I, I agree. I think the current Dalai Lama too is kind of lighthearted and very just fun and free-spirited to be around, yeah. but I can tell from interviews. So I think he would be incredible. Dr. Nick Porth, thank you so much for joining us for this live episode of the Pupil Pod. 